0: Hello and welcome to Midnight Showing. I'm Nash, that's Luke, and this week the random movie we watched at midnight was Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King. Was it worth it? That's what we're here to tell you and don't worry we will notify you before we start spoiling. Luke? Nashy boy dude it's been
1: 20 (laughs) weeks. Can you believe that?
0: It is kind of hard to believe and even more so that we've Made, like, more videos, especially
1: with the Mad Max stuff, more videos than 20. What are we up to, like, yeah, like Yeah, like, 23, 24. It's just, it's weird when you're, like, measuring life by, like, how many weeks it's been since we started. You know what I mean? Like, a fat 20. It's like, oh, God, the rest of our lives are going to be measured out by these episodes, aren't they, dude? They're going to slowly take over our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: they really, honestly, the only time is, like, the first two or three weeks is, like, when you really sort of notice... And then it just falls into a routine. But...
1: (laughs) enough of our, you know. Sorry, well, I brought that up because you know, if you have been with us since week one, you know that the first movie that gave us the whole idea for this podcast was 12 Monkeys, directed by Terry Gilliam. That movie literally inspired us to start this podcast because we were like, yo, this is a great movie that I bet a lot of people our age haven't seen. Why don't we just try to find these kind of movies? And here we are 20 weeks later with another Terry Gilliam film, and I think The Fisher King literally hits our niche that you and i wanted to hit perfectly spot on
0: yeah exactly and that's precisely the reasons why we decided to do this because we liked terry gilliam's directing style it was out there it was unique um and it wasn't bad At so all, all yeah. of those things all of those things together brought us back to another one of his films that is what we think underappreciated yeah
1: i've decided that every 20 episodes we're going to do a terry gilliam film so stick around for episode 40 we'll probably do like brazil or something (laughs) 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 so uh let's get into that cast dude you know movies star people you know if you have a movie it's probably gonna have it's probably gonna be starring somebody right am i right on that
0: yeah, yeah, typically they, yeah. Yeah, that's cool.
1: That's how stories go. <laughs> um, so, so this movie is starring Jeff Bridges, an actor who I got to say, man, when I think about it, I haven't seen a lot of Jeff Bridges movies, and I think that has to change because I think he's a really phenomenal actor. He plays Jack Lucas in this movie. We will get into him. And then, um, of course, we got the late, great Robin Williams. And oh, yeah. my God. You want to look at Robin Williams and like be like, oh, you mean that guy from Mrs. Doubtfire, those goofy movies? Oh, the guy who played Peter Pan and Hook? No, dude. This guy <laughs> has the goddamn chops, bro. You watch this movie, you tell me he's not an amazing actor, and in fact, he actually won an award for his performance in this movie. So if you really want to... Get on that Robin Williams train. This is the movie for you. And then um, we got some girlfriends in the movie who play a really big role. We got Amanda Plummer as Lydia. And then we have Mercedes Rule as Anne. And that's pretty much our main four people we're focusing on for the movie. And then, um, oh, I didn't look up the name of um, the other homeless person who comes um, and sings to her at work. I forgot. I should have looked that up. I apologize to that person. (laughs) Oh, it
0: was Jeter. Jeter? Jeter. Mike, is it Michael Jeter?
1: Um, I don't know, I don't know, let's uh, let's move on since I'm unprepared, I apologize to the masses. Can you run me through the world real quick and then we'll get into Terry Gilliam? I, I, yeah, of course, I feel I've, I'd love to. <laughs>
0: um, so it's set and filmed in New York, uh, the movie takes place in the same year of its release, so I think that after the time skip. It's 1991. Um, An important backdrop for this movie is this was the first year that the crime rate had started to drop in New York City. Um, So while the decline isn't really expressed, uh, the violence and the large-scale homelessness shown in the film comes from this period because of the increased crime and violence going on. Uh, So it's very grounded in realism to that degree. Uh, It also centers around a talk show host based loosely around Howard Stern's real-life rise to fame and increased popularity. Uh, In the trailer, especially, you'll hear about a famous... Like, in the age of uh, radio. Like, talk show radio. So, that's kind of two important cultural things to know. If, you know, you're younger, Mm -hmm. you probably wouldn't know those things right off the bat or if you're not from the area. So... You know, those are important things to keep in mind. It isn't sort of this fantastic... It isn't too large of a fantastic trip
1: no you know and i think that, that's definitely something i want to get into in discussion because i feel like terry gilliam crafts these really unique movies and it went to 12 monkeys because it's a really sci-fi out there movie but this one's a lot more based in reality like you said and when it comes to being related to howard stern i felt as though it was kind of just the early 90s when he was definitely um, rising up in his career and jeff bridges kind of just has the persona of Uh, radio personality who kind of just wants to say what they want to say and doesn't like really think about the aftermath of what he says and real quick real quick in the movie that is um lent on so i felt like it wasn't directly related to any specific person but it was kind of embodying the idea of being a person who just talks into a microphone and thinks they're always right (laughs) (laughs) no exactly
0: it isn't Entirely based, it isn't like a Howard Stern replica. It's just sort of you have to understand that concept in that time period because that's when all of that was sort of popping off. And if you don't, you might see it might seem a little bit ridiculous or somewhat fantastical, but it, those were all like genuine things that happened in America and yeah. in New York specifically.
1: How'd you like the trailer for this one, bro?
0: Um, I gotta say, it's a classic 90s trailer. You've got that stereotypical movie, you know, narrator voice, which is occasionally followed by a quote from the movie to sort of ground what the narrator is describing. And it probably became the standard for a lot of movies just because it gets the job done. Yeah. It it, it sets the basic plot and purpose of the movie, can be understood very easily, uh, and it doesn't reveal too much about all the interesting things that are to come. It, you know, doesn't stand out even though this movie itself does stand out. Um but it lets the audience know exactly what they're going to watch.
1: Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. I didn't love the trailer, honestly, just because I think I watched, like, I, I definitely watched it, but I kind of wished I didn't watch it right after just because I wanted to have no idea what the movie was going to be about starting it. Um, and it's definitely a trailer that tells you, like, what the movie's about. But at the same time, there's still a lot of mystery once you watch it. But, um, yeah. So uh, what else do we got for this intro, bro? The uh, motifs and themes? What are you feeling for some uh, themes on this one?
0: Um, well, I know PTSD was a big thing. For both main characters, Robin Williams and uh, Jeff Bridges.
1: Yeah, a lot, a lot of clear embodiments of that idea.
0: Yeah, exactly. You've got a lot of visions. You've got a lot of sort of sleeping things related to it. Uh, people lacking focus because of their uh, past trauma. Um, and you also, because it's based off of Arthurian legend, you've got nobility, um, sort of being honorable, that type of thing. Yeah. Definitely comes up a lot. I feel you that.
1: Um well, you know, I feel like I feel like there's definitely a lot to unpack with this movie and you know, the title of it is The Fisher King, so I think at the end of the day, it all kind of draws back to that original poem that we're going to really start discussing, because I know you personally know a lot about Arthurian times being that phenomenal history major that you are. Yeah, so I really feel like for this movie, we're going to kind of unpack it as we go rather than like setting up a big mold, because I feel like there definitely is a lot in this movie that needs to be like analyzed and figured out to really understand what Sari Gilliam was going for.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of why our, uh, how we describe the setting in this one is a little bit different, just because I don't think people should be so focused or analytical about the setting, because everything else going on in the movie is way more important. Whereas,
1: yeah, he plays, sorry to interrupt, but he plays with the, he plays with the setting a lot too, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, it definitely bases it off of, and so if you're trying to question that, I feel like you're doing yourself a diff, a disservice when you should probably just sort of accept it because it is kind of based on actual things that happen. So yeah, you know, if you if you don't know them, I feel like that would be one of the downfalls of watching it, kind of, especially since like we just did Mad Max, where that the majority of that movie I feel like is driven by the setting. And those subtle back notes about it being described that you don't really focus on. Yeah. Whereas this is is kind of the opposite, where you're told the setting or explained the setting rather quickly, and if you don't really know it before you go into it, it'll trip you up trying to enjoy everything else that it shows you
1: yeah i agree i agree with that a lot i think it was really good that you related to mad max because i think it um just a a good way to show that you know there isn't a clear-cut way to tell a story dude you got a million different ways a million different things you can focus on and terry gilliam just makes some interesting movies bro so let's ask me if it's thumbs up or thumbs down because i really want to get into the, the discussion bro
0: Well, Luke, is a thumbs up or a a thumbs down? Thumbs up. (laughs) Thumbs up. (laughs) We got a thumbs up here. Not very surprising. Not very surprising. But now that we've given you a taste of the movie, we really don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen it. So if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our channel. Pause this video so you can check this one out for yourself.
1: All right, let's get into this. Um, <laughs> so, yo, yo, yo. First, let's establish the Fisher King legend before we talk about the actual movie, because ha- I've, I have a feeling that you can relate it very similarly to the poem in the movie. Am I correct in that assumption? Oh, yeah, you definitely can.
0: And for anybody that has studied English literature in any degree, whether it's, like, high school college something that you're going to get told a lot is that titles are important and in any form of media titles are very important and because that's sort of where your focus that's where the focus of whatever piece you're subscribing yourself to that's where the focus essentially is where that's where the importance is in the larger aspect um so this one is called the fisher king which is the title of uh, an Arthurian legend. In fact, probably the Arthurian legend uh, that has to do with sort of the Knights of the Round Table and all that because sort of the epitome of them all is to get to the Holy Grail and this is the actual legend where uh, one of them finds the uh, Holy Grail.
1: What was his name?
0: Oh, the guy that
1: found it. It was Percival. Hmm, that seems very similar to a name of the person in the movie, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they got, they got i got looking I, for name, Perry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So, um so the Fisher King so so yo yo. Know, so, Arthurian legend is all about like King Arthur and the Round Table, right? So, the Fisher King is specifically about the one story where someone actually got the Grail because isn't the whole idea behind those crusades is that it took place over like a couple hundred years and there were like a lot of failures and like you couldn't really figure out what the success was of these crusades and then this was the story where someone actually like found someone who could tell them where the grail was and stuff like that. Isn't that how the story goes, if I'm not mistaken?
0: Well, they're all incredibly symbolic. Um, Most of them are, I I think, a lot longer than this story in particular um, just because they focus on sort of somebody going and trying to, you know, do this noble quest where sort of they prove their Christianity and their nobility. Yep. And oftentimes they fail Um, and it becomes very defining of them as characters, as people, as knights of the round table. Yeah. And as a group of a whole. One of the best examples, I think, is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight where he initially fails in his quest, but he learns from his mistakes um, because it was all actually just a test of, of sort of his character and his uh, green, the knight's sort of green appearance is something that embodies the Knights of the Round Table as they take uh, that green and wear green from there on out as sort of a remembrance of that trial that they had to go as that he had to go through. Um, Uh, uh,
1: okay. 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 That makes sense. So, um, yo, so yo, let's talk about Terry Gilliam for a second. If you remember from our 12 monkeys movie, we thought it was funny that he did a lot of the Monty Python movies. So Knights of the round table, we fight whenever we're able. Like I'm pretty sure that's all like Terry (laughs) Gilliam stuff. Right. So, um, I personally just like, I could be wrong in this, but I feel like Arthurian Legends that time period isn't a thing that's done a lot in film. Kind of like, you know, remember for Revolution we were like, we feel like we weren't through that many American Revolution movies. I feel like this type of mythology and history isn't shown a ton in film. And what I really liked about The Fisher King was that it took place in New York City in the 90s. So like, it wasn't a movie about King Arthur's Table or like a literal interpretation of the story of Percival. It's Terry Gilliam's take on The Fisher King in modern times. And do you feel like because he has that experience with Monty Python, it could have played into why this movie is so unique in telling an ancient story like that.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely think it plays into it because it sort of admits that he has a respect for it if he keeps coming back to it when he is the type of director that, you know, would shut down a movie if he didn't have his way on being able to direct it. Yeah, okay. So, you know, for him to come back to that kind of familiar topic uh, multiple times really speaks to he enjoys it and I think it's revealed through this movie just because it's hard to do that kind of reboot like you have to really want to I cannot imagine somebody who didn't like or didn't enjoy that sort of very old literature trying to redo it for modern times I can't enjoy. I can't imagine a director doing that, right? Because like, it it's would...
1: a very specific time period to focus on, too, right? Like, like yeah, you like it's um, uh, what what do I mean? Like, like there's a, obviously there's a ton of different history in the world. Like, I feel like you have to really be into that specific time period to really want to like dive into it and tell stories from that time. Just because there's so much stuff to focus on, that's why I feel like it might be something that's overlooked by a lot of storytellers and stuff. You know.
0: Oh, exactly. It's especially because there isn't really one set of agreed upon what is and what isn't in that area of literature. Yeah, okay. So there are multiple versions of the story. If you look up The Fisher King (coughs) right now, what you're going to find is a ton of different stories where they're not even called The Fisher King. Uh, Sometimes The Fisher King isn't the actual main king. Sometimes it's his son. Sometimes there's only the king. And sometimes the injury that he has is different. Sometimes the son isn't injured. Sometimes they're both injured. So there are a ton of different versions. And trying to sort of pick out which one you want to use, how much you want this, your story to be literally based off of that, I, it would just be so difficult. It's not an easy type of thing to do. Kind of like if somebody... Like, while you don't see a lot of Shakespeare remakes, as you would imagine for the countless amount of plays... Well, not countless.
1: But, yeah, you know, no. no I feel, we know how many yeah. plays...
0: For the large amount of plays that he wrote, it's just because if you're doing that on... Or for, like, film, you know, those plays can sometimes run four hours... So, you really have to sort of focus on okay, what do I want to show? What version do I want to use? All that stuff is so difficult. And I understand why people don't want to take that task up, especially if it's not going to be that rewarding in the end.
1: But this movie is definitely rewarding. And when you, um, if you look up like videos on it on YouTube, there's a lot of content of like Jeff Bridges talking about the movie and he says it was one of his favorite experiences filming in his entire career working with like Robin Williams and stuff and Robin Williams of course won the award so it's pretty clear that Terry Gilliam was really into the world he wanted to make knew the history knew the world and it honestly just feels like everything came together so let's talk about the actual movie Uh, we're like 20 minutes in we barely (laughs) talked about the actual movie bro so um you know I really like the first scene Not only because it establishes Jack Lucas really well, but just the camera movements of how you're looking down upon him in, like, the room with the radio. You got all the technicians on, like, the other side, and he's just... Really exemplifying the kind of person he is. First, when he's talking to the woman who says her husband always finishes her sentences, and then he starts finishing her sentences. And then yeah, in in <laughs> yeah, hilarious. in the second part, he's talking to the to the um, celebrity who had the affair in the limo, and he's like like um, come on, we we don't want to hear about anything besides the sleazy love affair. And so yeah. <laughs> how do you think that kind of relates to creating a character that could be the type of Fisher King? Because do you feel like like the Fisher King is a story about nobility and doing things for other people to like get your own things. But at the beginning of the story, Jack really isn't that person yet. How do you feel about that?
0: I think it's done incredibly well with the shots that they use. Um, Cause something that I noticed is in, in that, those that opening scene, the main focus of those shots is really on his mouth and the microphone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are some shots of sort of him, With, like, taking up most of the frame, you know, he's the center of attention. Yeah. But for the large part of it, like you said, it focuses on the whole studio that he's in, uh, the recording booth. It focuses, and it focuses on his mouth and the microphone. It doesn't so much focus on him in the shot like the rest of the movie does. Yeah. So, for me, just sort of symbolically, you get that that is sort of a different persona, than the person following that. He is a different person in the booth than he is outside of it.
1: Okay, I feel that. I feel that a little bit. Um, and then, well, then then we, we get the moments in, in his apartment, right? And where he's, like, dancing on top of the world, practicing his lines. You can tell that he's going places in his career, like he's kind of just at the start. And then what I really liked was in those first five minutes, you know, snap of the fingers and the conflict has already happened. The thing that is going to drive the rest of the movie has already happened is that his words, of course, caused the person to commit this horrifying act. And so... I thought it was interesting just that we didn't get too much time of Jeff Bridges right on top of the world. It was that Terry Gilliam established him as the character you just said. And we feel like he is a different persona on the microphone and a different person in real life. And then it's proven that he is a different person in real life once he actually understands the consequences of his words. You know what I mean? This is all in the first five minutes of the movie that they're giving you all this.
0: Yeah, almost immediately you have a total different uh, character. Yeah. So that was, I mean, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's done very well uh, combining all of those aspects of it, the shots, uh, the time skip, mm-hmm. and his dialogue too. His tone's a little bit different. It's incredible acting, to say the least.
1: Yeah, oh, dude, he's he phenomenal performances by everybody in this movie, definitely. And once again, what I like about that time skip is that once it, once it, for, sorry. Once it fast forwards to three years later, um you can really tell that the adventure has started. Like there's no going back from here, and I just found it really interesting that he spent so much time, like, actually feeling upset about it. Like you know, he re- they really played with his persona in the way that he was this radio personality who seemed like he didn't care, and then just having the ultimate thing happen that will make somebody like change their life around and you just have the classic hero who has fallen off even though he's not really a hero or is he a hero we'll figure out as the movie continues but
0: you know know
1: the point i'm trying to get to that like we see him fall and we're right in the midst of it and then again before you know it we already we're already meeting robin williams in a very like um would you say it's a biblical way that robin williams comes onto the screen i don't know if biblical is the right word but it's very kind of like grand you know what i mean it's it's definitely a grand a grandiose
0: uh, setting for when he enters the movie um, biblical. I, I would agree with that. One of the people um, is carrying like a like a oh spear, I forgot about that. Iron I forgot about that cross yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of dramatic. But to go back to what you said earlier about him suffering um, on his own, that point is reinforced. Uh, close to, uh, you know, at the back half of the movie when he calls his agent and his agent just says, yeah, if you want to work, you can you just come in, I'll set stuff up. So we yeah. sort of get that he really punished himself um by quitting. Like, he took it upon himself to quit because he felt bad about it. Yeah. Rather than he was pushed out because of the things he's done. And that is a very small detail, but really sort of plays to the character note that i think Gilliam was trying to get to that he isn't a bad guy yeah he's just sort of chasing fame and chasing his own success in any way that he
1: can yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) No, no no he is he is he's chasing in any way that he can and you know, it's 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 really great character writing within the first ten minutes of the movie, and when you're off to that good start, you know that's just gonna go. So, um, of course, the twist of the movie is that Robin Williams' wife was killed during the incident that Jeff Bridges inconsequently caused, and so that feeling of like indebtment, like feeling like he needs to do something for Robin Williams, he just doesn't know what yet. I feel like. That is a really good marker of what the Fisher King is really supposed to be about. Can you kind of relate that point to the story overall and how Robin Williams' character is broken and insane and suffers from PTSD and all these terrible things and how Jeff Bridges is like trying so hard to be his person and it's interesting how love is what ends up being the catalyst for Jeff Bridges to overcome his mistakes.
0: Yeah, and it really does a good thing. Like, the way this movie sort of very blatantly, multiple times throughout the whole thing, says it's sort of the focus is this Arthurian legend. But it really sort of takes a back seat after we see um, Robin Williams' character, Perry, explain the Holy Grail thing. And it's like, that's just like a cup in a rich guy's apartment. Like, it's not, mm-hmm. the, the, it's not the literal Holy Grail. So... From that point on, I think as an audience member, you take more of the, okay, it's theoretical, the actual quest part, and Jeff Bridges, the grail in this sort of setting, is actually the girl. That's what's going to revive him, that's what's yeah. going to bring him back, that's what's going to help uh, bring back the king, so to speak, the, the Fisher King. And it's an important thing to note, too, with most of the versions of that... Uh, story the king or his son that they're both affected in a way that they can't continue their lineage yeah and to have the theoretical grail in that instance in in that instance be a woman
1: sort of plays into that idea too so i have a question for you so we have the theoretical grail of being her in the beginning and then We, of course, have at the end when Rob Williams falls off again because of the um, visions, and we have a literal grail and a literal mission at the very end of the movie for the last like 15 minutes or so. I thought it was really interesting how Terry Gilliam is able to craft these types of worlds where like we aren't necessarily sure what's reality and what's fiction. In 12 Monkeys, I feel like that was really the point of the movie, was to kind of change your perception of reality and kind of not really know what's going on with Bruce Willis. And in this movie, it's a lot more grounded in reality, like I think we already mentioned. And um, the way that, like, Terry Gilliam presents the world to you at all these interesting camera angles from Robin Williams' perspective, from Jeff Bridges' perspective – it's really interesting to see, like, the literal embodiment of the grail right there bring him back to life because it almost makes you wonder if Jeff Bridges dreamt that entire sequence. You know what I mean? Like, the whole point of the movie wasn't yeah. is any of this stuff actually happening, but it still kind of makes you question your reality through the way Terry Gilliam films his movies. So that's why I think he's such a interesting director and why I'm excited to do more of his movies throughout this series of podcasts because – how often do you have a director who can make a movie grounded in reality almost not feel like it's grounded in reality or kind of play with our expectations of what can actually happen in this world?
0: Yeah, exactly. Especially because when you're playing it based off of a legend, so much of it is grounded in reality. But then in the end, um, we, we see him get the actual grail that Perry mentioned and it actually revives it and brings him out of that coma. It, it does sort of make you wonder because that's sort of the most fantastical thing that happens in the whole movie, especially when both of these characters are suffering from some sort of PTSD or trauma based around the events of that uh, restaurant getting shot up. Like, it's it, it kind of reminds me of on, in Shutter Island. Like, at, at the end of it, it's sort of like the whole point of the, you know, pretend investigation they were doing was to bring his uh, delusions full circle so that he would have to embrace the real world. And that's kind of what happens here, I think, is both the characters have to conclude all the things that they're telling themselves in their head. They have to bring those to an end so they can move on to a more realistic lifestyle.
1: Right, and then when Jeff Bridges actually does that for himself he rejects everything that he had been working towards like specifically with his relationship with um Mm -hmm. i believe her name was Anne in the movie um yeah 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 Anne. like his relationship with her like a like a total jerk he just cuts off the relationship once he realizes that he can kind of move on in his life instead of taking her with him he just wants to get out the door and get on with like his actual life so i feel like that plays into what you just said we're like how noble are the actual people in the adventure, you know what I mean? Yeah, you see that test of faith, kind of, where Mm -hmm. it's
0: like, okay, so he's moving back into the old life where he was successful, and he realizes while he's in it that that isn't really how he can continue. That isn't how he genuinely wants to be. And so he ends up going back and he ends up helping And that sort of defines him as being a good guy and makes him a very human character because he failed, essentially. He got rid of everything that, when he wasn't doing so well, he got rid of everything that kept him going because his new life had things that were nicer. Mm -hmm. Where he was was in control, so he tried to control as much as possible rather than be sort of genuine to himself.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I just... uh... It feels so <laughs> it feels very um it feels like it's playing out like a poem of the Crusade definitely like it definitely feels like it's drawing from that source material and having the story unfold in a modern way while still staying true to the original idea and I feel like that is another reason why. The movie um, does such a good job of like staying true to that idea of the crusade and everything we're pulling from. And again, something that I didn't even really think of till after the movie was how his embodiment of PTSD is a devil knight who can blow fire out of its thing—a literal knight from the time period in which the Fisher King is pulling from.
0: Yeah, exactly. It looks like a medieval knight. This sort of. Um... I guess, uh, the image of his, of his stress yeah. that he, he, that he has to defeat. Yes. And sort of, I, uh, I wonder about, because there is sort of something that I wondered is the loose connection if sort of Perry knew that Jack was the cause of his pain at some point, you know, that he was the cause of his wife dying more than he lets on just because he sort of says in the beginning once we see the red knight for the first time that uh jack has like the knight is scared of jack yeah so it's like an admission that you know by you you know being right and sort of fixing the mor- moral issues that you had earlier if you can fix those you're getting rid of the problem that
1: Sort of was presented in my life. It really makes Jack feel like he's in control of the entire plot in that way, where like he was the reason why this thing happened, um, not directly, but his words caused this tragedy to happen. And now he has the power to expel those bad thoughts from Robin Williams, bring him back into reality, and make him be the great husband that he knows he can be to. Um, why can't I remember anybody's name? Um, to to Lydia Lydia of course um so it's really like it's done in that in that way where like we know that Jeff Bridges needs to do this task for Perry to get him to this next level but at the same time it's not what am I trying to say? I'm think I'm trying I'm trying to make the point again of how like it feels like a quest, but it feels like it's done in a very modern time period. Oh no, that I think that's yeah, I think that's
0: probably the why this movie is so good is because in the beginning, Jack, you know, once he sort of dismisses the Grail, he wants to bring the issue back to something immediate and real. Yeah. Okay, he wants to get him this girl. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot more simple than breaking into a guy's house to steal a cup because he thinks it's, you know, the it had the blood of Christ in it at some point. Yeah. It's a much more fantastic idea. And it really isn't about either of those things. It's about fixing the mistakes in the past.
1: Yeah, and so can you relate to that to, to The Fisher King even further and how that poem really drives how we know if our characters are fixed at the end of the day or not. Like if we know that they actually accomplish their mission, how does that relate to the Fisher King as a poem as a whole?
0: Well, exactly. I think the best thing to do is to take the quote from the movie where it's sort of, you know, he couldn't find no, none of the Knights could find the Holy grail until, uh, Percival sort of just gave him a cup of water to drink and just took the cup that was nearest by it shows the real importance of it is if you're looking for the grail, you know, with that sort of cynicism, you're not going to find it. You have to be a more benevolent person. Your character has to be more in line with sort of like a, a you have to have a more Christian idea of why you want it rather than for like your selfish gains. Like he only gave him the cup of drink, that cup of water because he knew he was thirsty. Not because he knew it was going to help him. And so that's kind of... That really is the point in the end is he has to be doing the actions for the right reasons. Rather than trying to sort of fix his own guilt, he has to just sort of admit that he's a better person.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. I think you just outlined it really well. And what I think is also really interesting about this movie is that, like... This isn't necessarily the most interesting idea or plot in the entire world, right? But it's done. It, it definitely,
0: it, it definitely isn't unique. But... Yeah,
1: right. It, it isn't. But Jeff Bridges plays such a good character, and he goes on the journey of talking to all of the the people who are out of his world, specifically the homeless people. Like the conversation he has with the um with the um, I don't know if he's a um. Just the the bigger guy in the subway who who doesn't have the legs, and he tells. It looked,
0: him, yeah, it looks like a war veteran. Yeah, sort of. he
1: t- he tells him the story of being a moral traffic light, and how people will like say, "Well, my life isn't as bad as that guy's life," and so it's interesting to see um, Jeff Bridges playing this really good character who, in these situations, is able to look at these people and like relate to his own life, right? And Robin Williams is like the crazy person who kind of just gives the movie that type of flavor, so. I really enjoyed Jeff Bridges character and how the way that he is really able to carry the movie because you're able to see the world through his lens and he goes through this journey of seeing all these people meeting all these people hearing their stories hearing the lives they've had the things they've had taken away and then right when he gets his mojo back quote unquote he quits. He, he tries to go back to the life of being on top of the radio star, breaks up with his girlfriend, won't talk to the dude in the street, like all that stuff. And it's like the Fisher King became the Fisher King, grabbed that Holy Grail, then fell right back down to hell with everybody else who just doesn't care about these people's stories. And so thematically it was great to see Jeff Bridges make that Han Solo moment where he changes his <laughs> mind and comes back around and shoots Darth Vader out of the sky. And, um, (laughs) I don't know, I feel like I kind of just, um, the point I started that sentence with was not the point I wanted to make at the end of that sentence, but... Again, like it's not the most interesting movie in the world, but the characters are written phenomenally and the amazing performances make it feel so special and unique through Terry Gilliam's lens of just turning the camera a couple degrees on its side. And the moment you <laughs> just turn a couple degrees on its side, it's like I'm watching a completely different type of movie, dude. I was really into it, really into the uniqueness. Just it's a sick movie, bro. It's a sick movie, sick movie, bro.
0: It definitely makes sense why Gilliam fought so hard to have Bridges in there, because the acting in this movie is phenomenal. I think everybody was cast perfectly for the roles that they had. The writing um, was incredible, and in my opinion, an incredibly hard task to take on uh, to sort of retell that story in in a more unique way, in a more modernized way. Because it is, you know, it's a very... It's an ancient story with tons of different versions, and so where he decided to pick his focus definitely worked. Um, I wanted to ask if you had sort of any negative comments to make about this movie, because, like, like you just said, it isn't necessarily the most interesting movie, but, um, Anything else, I guess, that we could nitpick?
1: Just (laughs) just because I don't don't think it is perfect, but it is definitely incredible to watch. You know, I will say a comment we had about 12 Monkeys was that the movie felt like it was the 90s. I feel like Terry Gilliam's style, at least for these movies, does feel very 90s and not like it came out recently. So I wouldn't say it's a total detriment to the movie, but to a certain extent, it does feel dated. And I don't say that to go against what you just said about the movie feeling fresh and new in that modern aspect aspect but you definitely get the feel that it came out in the 90s like heavy heavy moods on that does that bother you at all it doesn't really bother me but it was definitely there i definitely noticed it you know yeah yeah
0: i, I see why people might uh sort of not like it or not enjoy it as much watching it now but i think i think it's all right just because it's sort of the setting was the modern time you know yeah, it it was about current events going on when it was released and so I think that's that's okay but I definitely see how people could see that as a negative. Yeah um, and like
1: I mean I don't even really want to say that as a negative because that sounds so lame that like you don't like a movie because it like feels old so like it's not detrimental in any way but it just is something that's noticeable that like if you show it to one of your friends who just hates old stuff I have this one friend he's gonna listen to this and hate me but I have this one friend who literally <laughs> doesn't watch anything that came out before like 2010 and I hate him so much <laughs> for it because I'm like bro watch this TV show from like 96 he's like a couldn't get bro is too old (laughs) like so so like to people like that i would say just like sit back and think about the like the way that the story is being told in that way because like it's really shouldn't be something that turns someone away from the movie but it's definitely something to be acknowledged in the way that the movie in the way that we're watching it 30 years later you know
0: yeah um i liked the writing a lot i thought it was really good but there was one thing that i felt and it might fall under the aspect of it being dated, just because of how directors perceived audience members back then and things like that. It was towards the end, after he gets famous, when they're telling him that idea for a show um, would be like the homeless. Yeah. People, I thought that was just a little too on the nose.
1: Definitely, definitely, and it was like, it was it, embodying something too. Yeah, it could have been
0: it could have been a lot more subtle but the same aspect as long as it was him being an ass. Yeah. I think that same point could have been made.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man. So like um I yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. Sorry, it took me a second to process what you said. Um so like it's an it's a it's a not super unique plot told in a super unique way. Do you think that's a good sentence to kind of embody? The Fisher King? Yeah,
0: I, I think it is.
1: Yeah, and like, just the way he plays with your perception of reality, whether it's the Grand Central Station scene or the whole ending crusade to go get that holy grail, like, there's definitely a... T- I feel like this is a movie that ten people could watch, ten different people could watch, and I'll have ten different perspectives and opinions they pulled from it.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree, and I especially I really have to shout out that uh, in Grand Central Station, that scene was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, that, like that whole scene because you've got the the war veteran talking about the traffic light. You've got um, sort of the delusion where everybody's dancing. Um, you know that it was just ah, gosh, I love that scene. It was yeah. <laughs> incredible, incredible, start to finish. There, I don't think there's a bad part. In it at all? Yeah. You know, was... How
1: do you um? How do you how do you feel about the ending of the movie and how Robin Williams actually gets the girl in the end? Because I feel like it could have been told like a tragedy where he doesn't get the Grail at the very end. But Terry Gilliam definitely made a very conscious choice to have Jack go back and say "I love you" to Anne and have that moment where she just starts bawling her eyes out because Robin Williams is finally awake. Did you like the ending of the movie?
0: I think the ending of the movie solidifies that it's a comedy because that's how comedies end with everything being very happy. And honestly, that's a very, uh, archaic sort of formula where if you can sort of relate how movies start to the season where it's like the spring, especially back in the time when, uh, the Fisher King would have been written, uh, poems, epic poems and things like that, that were based heavily on that, where it's like the winter is the worst season because everything dies. You yeah, know, there's, yeah. everything's barren. So that's essentially um, where sort of tragedies kind of fall off or in the fall because things aren't necessarily getting better. They're either bad because of the action that have taken place or they're just sort of this is life and you have to accept it. Whereas comedies, they have to end in the spring because everything's happy. Everything's coming to life. That's when everything is having babies. So, everybody likes that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. I agree with that. I agree with that. So, you know, I've. This is one of those reviews where we're like, we're like wrapping up, and I almost feel like we didn't talk about the movie too much, you know, because like obviously we did, but there's just so much there for so many different people to really look at and like relate it to their own lives, related to their own experiences, related to their own journeys. And I feel like. Overall, you can't say that about a movie and have the movie not be just really, really, really good. Am I right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There are a million viewpoints you could have for this movie. Um, and because it's a comedy, and that's one thing, because I, I think we can start wrapping up here, getting into the genre section. As a comedy, we sort of try to avoid those because if, if – if it's a very good comedy and it's got like just they're really funny jokes, that's about all we can sort of talk about for the movie because comedies sort of play out the same across the board. I mean, there are definitely exceptions to that, but one of the first movies that we actually watched and never did a review on was a Norm MacDonald comedy and it was funny, but when we were trying to record for it, pretty much all we could say was, Yeah, those jokes were pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so for this to be a comedy. And a drama, and that's something we didn't talk about at all, was how when this movie wants to be funny, it is hilarious.
1: And when it, but, wa- yeah, when it wants to not be funny, Robin Williams gets a bunch of blood on his face.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it, I think it's mainly a drama, but the funny scenes in it are hilarious. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd say it's a it's a drama with that little bit of sprinkle, that little bit of sprinkle of salt, you know. <laughs> that that that, com- that comedy salt. That comedy salt, son. <laughs> yeah, bro. So, like, I hope I hope that we were able to kind of dissect what we thought the Fisher King was really about, relating it directly to that story. But again, like, I encourage people to look at it. And just have your own opinion about it. Have your own way why how you like Jeff Bridges' character, how you didn't like Jeff Bridges' character, how you liked how they handled Robin Williams' uh, mental illness, how you didn't like how they handled uh, Robin Williams' mental illness. Like, this is definitely a movie where there's a ton there for a ton of different people and is just a great example of storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Just to sort of wrap up the genre section, one thing about Terry <laughs> Sorry, Gilliam. Sorry, yeah, I digressed. No, you. <laughs> no, you're good, dude. You're you're fine.
0: All good. All good points are being made here. Thank um, you. It's just important to note about Terry Gilliam that he is sort of an absurdist. I feel and that. What, I feel that. What that means is not everything has to make sense. Yeah. And so that's why when we're doing this, reviewing this, same thing with Twelve Monkeys. It's like there's so much to unpack. And it's very hard to focus a lot of times. And that's why, because not everything is made to to have sort of a direct purpose. Sometimes, just like life, you can't really define everything. Yeah. And so it's some things just happen.
1: And it's also incredibly quotable. But I feel like every quote isn't directly about the movie. He's kind of just giving comments about life and stuff. And I feel like that kind of plays into what you just said about... Um, not everything having a specific meaning, but kind of just having all these ideas like um, accumulate because this movie is definitely full of quotes. Like when he's um, swinging around the outside tower and he's like, thank God nobody looks up in this city. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like and there's there's stuff like that sprinkled all throughout the movie. That you can have a lot of long debates about about what it actually truly means, or if it doesn't mean anything. You know, like there's this is definitely a really good movie for those cinephiles, for those people who want to look at what the film was exactly saying with this motif and theme. And uh, Luke and Nash had such dumb opinions about it. Mine are better. That's the grand thing about movies, baby, is that I want you to tell me that opinion, so I can tell you that yours is wrong and mine's right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I joke, I joke, I joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, it's a very good point to make. It's incredibly fun to analyze this and talk about this movie just because who knows if a point that we brought up was just not even real, not even on Gilliam's mind when he made it. Yeah. Um. So would you recommend this to your friends?
1: Yep, definitely. I don't think it's a movie that everybody would enjoy necessarily to like every single friend I have, but yeah, I think a good amount of my friends would think this is a cool movie. Family, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, yeah. I think, I think your family
0: can watch it. It's, it's has a little bit of violence in it, a little bit of blood,
1: but it's not, um, it's not egregious violence. It's there for a very specific reason in the plot.
0: Yeah, and I don't think a single animal dies. Um, Ooh, that's nice, dude. The last, like, five movies we've
1: watched, there's been a
0: death of an animal, which I am so that, sorry to everybody. That really is defining if it's family-friendly or not. <laughs> if an, Yo, if an facts, animal dies. Big facts,
1: big facts, big um,
0: As far as cult classics go, I think this is 100% a cult classic, and still is today. I don't think it has that big of a following compared to a lot of other movies that we've done, like The Thing, which started off as a cult classic and then it became an incredibly popular movie in the horror genre.
1: Yeah. Just to put, put that into perspective. I live, this is another movie I'd literally never heard referenced, never heard mentioned in my entire life. And I'm a Robin Williams fan. I like Jeff Bridges. This is just a movie i never heard about until I was motivated to look for movies like this. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So definitely watch this cause it, it deserves some fame, man. All right. So, I guess that's it. We did all of them. We hit all of them.
1: That's all of them, who, baby. That's all. Who of did them. Our, Who did the music? Uh, we got we, we we got a double time on Schwartz this week, dude. Playing us in and playing us out. Thank you, my friend.
0: Oh, stand loyal. I love to hear that. So. With all that being said, please be sure to like and subscribe to our channel. Follow us on Instagram to stay in the loop for upcoming episodes and help us determine the movies we watch and future content we can bring to you. Be sure to check us out at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com and remember your
1: donations keep my blue light on. We didn't talk about what movie we're gonna. Do. Oh, dude, we keep forgetting. I'm so sorry to the people. Well, yo, we actually just added a ton of movies to our list of potential reviews. So, uh, shouts to the people, we got you. Yeah,
0: yeah, maybe. Yeah, what we'll do this week um, for everybody listening, you know, we'll put up a poll or something, or have a vote for a movie or two. Uh, so let you, so let you, uh, fine viewers, decide. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's usually a good idea, Nash. Um, and you know what? You know what? Uh, all we want to do, we want to hear about the ruined lives of the people we want to be there, buddy. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and, a, and a couple quarters isn't going to make a difference anyway. <laughs> Great quotes this week. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right, see y'all next week. Thank you.